yes, it is nice to be back with you. We rejoice with you um, that uh, you've called a new pastor. We've been praying for you, and uh, it's great to see how God has led, and we'll continue to pray for you as uh, you go through this transition. And, and um, yeah, we're very excited for you. So uh, I don't know about you, but if something's broken, what do you do? You fix it. Okay, there you go. You fix it. That's what you do. When something's broken, you fix it. Now, where do you learn how to fix it? Now, I don't know about you, but most of the time, you know where I go? I go to online. I mean, my washer, my washer, the stinking thing, it breaks. It's broken now, in fact. The, the part, I ordered the wrong part. I thought it was the water pump that was broken with the washer. I ripped it apart, and the water pump was fine. It was the hose, and the hose was leaking. That's all it is, but I had to put it back together. I mean, it still works. It just leaks all over the floor, and then it just, you know, goes over to the drain, and the water's gone. So it's not a real big problem, but, you know, my wife's like, hey, the washer's still broke, you know. <laughs> it's been leaking for six months. And so anyway, the part finally came. I got the part, so now I just got to fix it. But when I ripped it apart, I couldn't figure out how to get it back together. You know, sometimes it's really easy to rip it apart. It's to put them back together that's kind of the hard part. And, man, I had a student over there, and we're busting ourselves trying to get this thing together. Why won't it snap together? And I finally, you know, what did I do? I jump online, and I search how to put the washer together. Some guy's got some little video there. Oh, man. Boom, bang, boom. It's in. Done. Put it right together, right back together. And now I know how to do it, too. So when I fix that hose this time, hopefully this week, then uh, it won't be a problem anymore. But I don't know about you, but man, I just look all kinds of stuff up online. I'm here and there, and I learn and I learn and I learn. But we're going to talk about something today that you don't search for online. In fact, it's something that people don't look for advice when it's broken. They don't look for advice anywhere, or they look in all the wrong places. I would contend a lot of people, they actually look for advice even online when it comes to this area of their lives, and they shouldn't. They should come to their pastor. They should come to an older elder and when I say elder, I'm just an older person, not an official capacity. The pastor's the elder. <laughs> okay, but an older man in the church that has some experience, that has some advice, who can do the teaching. But so often in our society, we are very private. We're very individualistic. We're going to fix it ourselves. But, but this area, we need to be reaching out to one another. We need to be seeking our pastor. We need to be seeking an older man in the church, and we need to learn from them. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Song of Solomon. The book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a very misunderstood book of the Bible, and it's a little bit dangerous of one to teach or preach as well. The book of Song of Solomon. I taught a class, uh, a Sunday school class, on the book of Song of Solomon several years ago, and um, it was a summer module, and, and so just, you know, anybody who wanted to could could come to the class. Obviously, most of the people that showed up were married couples, but I had some single people there too. And uh, it was kind of a, it was a good study. One of the students, a fellow, uh, one of the students there at the end of the year, some of the college students were starting to show up. And so, you know, we had our modules going on and they're like, so what classes do we have going on? And they said, well, there's this one on Song of Solomon and then there's this other one. And blah, blah. Song of Solomon, what's that about? One of the students asked. And they were like, it's about marriage. It's about marriage. Yes, it is about marriage. It's about marital intimacy, a topic that the Bible actually has a fair amount to say on, not just negatively, but positively. People in the world are absolutely shocked that the Bible would actually talk about that. 
So the book of Song of Solomon, if you're having problems finding it, you have the book of Psalms. A lot of people know where Psalms is. If you can't find Psalms, just flip through because it's a really big book. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Solomon. And it's a small book. It's a small book, just eight chapters there in, in, the, uh, the, um, in the wisdom literature. So as we get into Song of Solomon here, we're just going to be looking at the first four verses. But I always start off by just reading God's word, and so I'm going to do that at this time. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Now, some of you might be getting a little bit nervous right now, but just so you know, you know, my children are here too. And the book of Song of Solomon was actually written in a way that, that you know, some things just kind of fly over people's heads and some things, you know, they kind of connect with uh, people who know a little bit more, okay? And uh, that's how I'm going to intend to preach the sermon as well. So if you're a little bit nervous, you know, my kids are here too, and uh, we'll be okay, and we'll work through this. The main propositional statement is that God wants you to enjoy marital intimacy. He does. God created marital intimacy as a gift. It was something that he made, and he gave us something to, to read about it, to, to know something about it. And I think it's uh, kind of unfortunate that we kind of are like, ah, oh, this is so scary or whatever. And I th also find it amazingly ironic that somebody accidentally jacked up the thermostat and made it super hot in here. So if you were really concerned about me keeping you awake today, I'm probably not going to have that problem. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. So let's go ahead and get into this. Before we get to the actual sermon, though, there are three points that I just want to discuss with the book as a whole. The book as a whole. First of all, we have this, this um, verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. My Bible says it's the Song of Solomon. The actual name of the book is the Song of Songs. Though Solomon, I believe, is the author, the actual title is the Song of Songs. And that's an interesting statement. I know it's, you've had a lot of different preachers in here, and I've been here a few times. But uh, uh, several weeks ago, we had this, um, I preached this sermon on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I don't, if, I don't know about your Bible, but for me, you know, I've got Song of Solomon right here, and then right above it is the end of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 8, you have this phrase, and it's vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. As you think about that phrase, vanity of vanities, what does that mean? Of all of the vanities in the world, this is the vanity. Okay, it's like this is the big one. And, and we use that expression to refer to Jesus. You know, he is the king of kings. Well, of all of the kings in the world, Jesus is the king. Now, think about this. What does it say about the Song of Songs? Of all of the songs out there, this is the song. This is the one. I just find that fascinating that this is something that's really important. And Solomon says, this is really important. And God, he says, this is important. I'm putting it in my book. But we kind of get a little bit scared and squeamish and scared about it because the content is kind of like, wow, man, how do I handle this? 
And for a very long time, I didn't really know anything about the Song of Solomon. When I began my PhD studies, my doctorate, my professor, I learned, actually wrote his, his dissertation on the Song of Songs. And I was like, this is it. Here's my chance. <laughs> I want to figure out this book. <laughs> and I wrote a paper for him, and I poured my heart and soul into that paper. I thought it was great. And I submitted that thing, and I got a lousy grade. <laughs> and I learned something. <laughs> if, if you want to learn something, write in an area that your professor is very knowledgeable in. But don't expect a good grade <laughs> because he knows a whole lot about it. And so since then, I've taught Sunday school on the Song of Solomon, and, and I've taught a Hebrew class on the Song of Solomon as well. And uh, I hope now that as we work through this book that you will understand and see why this is an important piece of literature in the Bible. It's something that you can read, you can learn from, you can study, you can grow from. I pray also that you're challenged. You're challenged toward holiness. Because I would say that is the biggest problem with marital intimacy in our Christian families. It's holiness. As we just sang all of these wonderful hymns and songs about Jesus and who he is and how we adore him and love him. You know, that is the actual number one key to really truly enjoying marital intimacy the way that God ordained it. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but hopefully I'm putting you a little bit at ease and maybe even giving the kids a little bit more time to fall asleep. So here we go. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. First, it's a superlative. This is the best song of all. So this literature is very important. The second um, prequel thing that I wanted to discuss is that we should be interpreting this book literally, just like we would any other piece of literature. You know, we have a lot of dispensationalists. Uh, I'm it's kind of a big word. Anyway, a lot of people like me who we, we read the Bible and we understand it literally. But then when we get to this book, we're like, no, that can't be right. Okay. But actually, why should we be shocked? In fact, you know, I use that illustration of online. Young people are learning about marital intimacy. They are. And we're not teaching them. And that's a problem. The church needs to be the place where they're learning about the truths of Song of Solomon. So uh, we need to be interpreting it literally. There are truths that can be learned here. Um, also, the third point that I had is that this is wisdom literature. You know, you have Ecclesiastes right before it. The book before that is Proverbs. All right? In the Hebrew Bible, the order of the books is Proverbs and then Ruth and then Song of Songs. Because Proverbs ends with the proverbial woman the woman of virtue okay and then you get a snapshot of what that could look like in the person of ruth and then it's interesting that ruth ends with a marriage and with a name we're going to talk about that later okay and then what do you have in the book of song of solomon it's right there it fits all together very nicely but just like in the book of uh, proverbs the proverbial woman in proverbs 31 she is an ideal woman it would be inappropriate for a husband to be smashing his wife over the top of the head with Proverbs 31 and saying, this is who you need to be. So also, it would be inappropriate for a husband to take Song of Songs and smash her over the head and saying, this is who you should be. Now, it would be appropriate, however, for a woman to read Proverbs 31 and say, this is who I need to strive to be. And so also, it would be appropriate for a woman to read the Song of Songs 
and say, this is who I should strive to be. This is wisdom literature, wisdom literature. So think pervert Proverbs when we work through the book of Song of Songs. Okay, so those were the three big things that I had as far as like prequel le leading you up to uh, the actual sermon. Um, and I hope that's helpful. And I hope that you can read through this book and it can be helpful for you, uh, you and your spouse. And um, um, so let's get into it. Here we go. So we had verse one. We already dealt with verse one. We're in verse two. And uh, we have uh, this desire right off the bat. Wow. It's like, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to explain the text first, and then we'll deal with some application. Um, and this is a very superfluous statement. Let him kiss me. Who is the one doing the talking here? It's the woman. She is doing the talking, and she desires the affections of her husband. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Well, what else is he going to kiss her with? You know, it's obviously of his mouth. Okay, so this is an extremely superfluous statement where this woman is desiring the kisses of her husband. And then this last line, for your love is better than wine. This uh, love here, when we see love, we think love as in the abstract idea of love. I love my wife. It's an abstract uh, statement of just, I love her. And it means a whole lot of different things. The word love is used in that way frequently, even in our culture. It may have kind of a more specific, subtle meaning. But usually when we say love, we, we mean this abstract, just this huge, big idea of love. That is actually not, not what's going on in this verse. The word here for love is actually plural. It's loves. Few of your translations are going to translate it that way. It's technically for your loves are better than wine. And in this text, in the uh, original language, there are two different words for love. We have this word for love. And then at the end of verse three, you have, therefore, the virgins love you. That is the other word for love. So what's the difference between these two kinds of words for love? Well, in, in, uh, in verse 2, for your loves are better than wine, that word is, is more of a marital intimacy kind of love. Some translations translate it as caresses. Your caresses are, more, uh, are better than wine. I think that is a good translation. This woman in Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 2, is reflecting upon previous intimate relations with her spouse, and she entreats him. She entreats him to kiss her again because she desires to be intimate with him again. One of the mysteries or interesting aspects of the Song of Songs is that there is this desire all over throughout the Song of Songs. And here you have a woman, and she desires her husband. God wants you to enjoy marital intimacy. Well, how do you hope to do that? Well, you need to desire your spouse. As I've studied the Song of Songs, and as I've talked to pastors, and as I've talked to fellow professors, what I've noticed is that in our Christian churches, so many times, this desire is like gone. 
I think there's several reasons for that, but those reasons are not going to be the point of this sermon, of this time in God's word. I think one of the main challenges I have for you is to talk to your spouse. It can be a very uncomfortable conversation. I was talking to my, um, well, he's an assistant pastor at our church, and uh, he is, is, his name's Doug Brown, and we were talking about just the Song of Songs, and, and uh, you know, most men, you know, we aren't going to want to talk about anything like this. You know, what do we do? We're going to figure it out, right? That's what we like to do. And the easiest thing to do is to do it individualistically, privately, and what are we going to do? We jump online or whatever, we're going to sort it out, we're going to figure it out, or, you know, whatever. We go to all the wrong places try to figure it out okay what do we need to do we need to talk we need to talk to our spouses we need to talk to our pastor we need to talk to an elder in the church and and we need to be a community it's kind of interesting how our society is so communal you know these stinking phones they keep us connected at all times so that i mean i always know what's going if i want to you know turn those notifications off I don't need to know. I'll, I'll look it up and I'll figure it out later. All right. And, and they were so community driven. But the interesting thing is that with all of the connectiveness that this gives us, it makes us very individualistic and we lack community. Our culture has recognized it. I looked at another pastor and he's really gotten into this CrossFit thing. It's good to exercise. It is. But you know what he comments about what's really nice about the CrossFit thing? The community. The church should be a place of community where we do talk to one another, where we do strengthen one another, where we do encourage one another. You need to talk. You need to desire your spouse. That is the principle from Song of Songs chapter 1 and verse 2. I find it particularly interesting that the woman, remember this is the ideal woman, and this ideal woman is that she desires her spouse. And again, as you read literature, as I've read literature, most often in married, familial, you know, married Christian homes, that's usually the major breakdown, is that the woman no longer desires her husband. Now, there are various reasons for that, and some of those reasons, I say a lot of those reasons, are good reasons, okay? And, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek to desire him. And so also, husbands, you need to realize that you're a sinner. And you need to seek to love your spouse in this way. So you need to love your spouse or you need to desire your spouse. Well, how does that happen? How do we go about doing that? Well, we need to talk. That's kind of the big thing that I had there. You need to talk. You need to desire your spouse. You need to talk to one another. What is it? that is creating this lack of desire on your part. Now, I do also find it interesting that in the English Bible, the previous book that's right before Song of Songs is the book of Ecclesiastes. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, it talks about the oldness and how we get old and we die. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 5, it says, also, they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. These are older people. You know, it's true. When we get older, you know, you're afraid of falling and uh, it can hurt. 
when the almond tree blossoms, okay, the almond tree gets white, so his start to get gray and old, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. One of the reasons why you may not desire so much anymore is just because you're getting old, and that's the reason, okay? That's one of the factors, but you need to talk. As you get old, things change, and what one person may desire when they're younger, they may not desire as they get a little older. So this is something that we need to talk about. Desire your spouse. You need to desire your spouse. Okay, let's look at the next point, coming from verse 3. Verse 3, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Okay, it's talking about ointments. When it's talking about good ointments, when it's talking about it's cologne, you know, smell good. You know, we don't, yeah, you know, don't stink. Okay, kind of simple, right? Uh, so what does she like about her husband? Well, he smells good. He doesn't stink. And there is an application there that's a valid point. We need to smell good. But actually, if you look at the text, there's something more going on there, a whole lot more. She's not really even talking about the smell. There's something much more important, much more valuable to enjoy marital intimacy. Look at the text again. The fragrance of your good ointments. She says that's what she enjoys. But then she explains it. Your name is ointment poured forth. Now understand in their society when they had this ointment poured forth or whatever, what's it talking about? Well, it's like the pouring of a perfume. When you pour a perfume, what does it do? It just fills up the room and it just smells really, really good. Okay, but, but it's a metaphor. Do you see the metaphor in the text? She's really not talking about the ointment or the perfume at all. What is she talking about? Your name. Your name is ointment poured forth. Okay, what is the point of comparison with this ointment as it smells so beautiful and it's maybe intoxicating like the wine in the previous verse, okay? It's intoxicating, all right? What makes, it so, what makes her so intoxicated for him? His name. Now, in the Hebrew mind and world, in the context of the Old Testament, they could just say that. But for us, who's like, what's so big about the name? Everything. Because the name is you. It's who you are. You see, when our son was born, our oldest son was born, you know, we had to pick a name. And we picked the name Josiah, because I liked it. <laughs> it is in the Old Testament. It's a nice name. It's fun to say in Hebrew, Yoshiahu. That's his name in Hebrew. But in, <laughs> but in Hebrew, Yoshi, yeah, you get it. <laughs> but Yoshiahu, that's his name. It means the Lord saves. That's what it means is the Lord saves. It's got a good meaning too. <laughs> and uh, and uh, um, his middle name is Charles, named after my grandfather, who was a man of God. Uh, he, uh, he got saved a little bit later in life, and he was very active in his local church. The Lord called him into the ministry, and he planted several churches in upstate New York. And so I named my oldest son Josiah Charles, um, uh, the first name because I liked it. It had good meaning, good king of Israel, and it sounded cool. And then the middle name uh, after my grandfather. Okay, now in the Hebrew, they, they change names. Think about it. You had Jacob, 
and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Saul. Jesus changed his name to Paul. They changed their names. Be, you know, for us, we can change our names with like official documentation and submit it to the government and blah, 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 blah. You know, when you get your name, it's your name. That's it. But for them, they changed their name based upon who the person was. And a lot of times, they'd get their name after they died. I don't know if you remember the story of David. He, uh, he, um, uh, he was about to kill uh, Nabal and Abigail and that whole family because Nabal was a fool. And his name was Nabal. Fool. That was his actual name. You know, hey, fool. Hey, fool. How's it going, fool? You know, this rich guy who had all this possessions. His name was Fool. Well, his name was changed to Fool. I'm sure his original name wasn't really Fool. Everybody called him Fool. Okay? So what is your name? That's the question. And what is it that this woman finds so intoxicating? His name. His reputation. Who he really is. Isn't that amazing? Because in our culture, you know, when there's problems with marital intimacy, they look for solutions and this and that. And you know what the real problem is? Holiness. Your name. Who you really are. Are you a holy person? Do you have a godly name? I want to illustrate this a little bit. I want you to turn in your Bibles. I'm only dealing with four verses here. Right. I know. So I'm having you flip around a little bit more. But that is intentional, okay? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Now, I already told you that in the Hebrew Bible, you have the book of Proverbs, and then you have the book of Ruth, and in the Hebrew Bible, the very next book is Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. Now, in Ruth chapter 4, there is actually a connection to the Song of Solomon, I think, I think it's deliberate. I haven't, I can't really prove this a whole lot, but it's, if, even if I'm wrong, okay, the name is really important. And we see the name in Ruth chapter 4 as a very important concept. And so I want to read to you Ruth chapter 4. And I'll, I'll have, I'm actually going to read probably, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It won't take that long, okay? We're all right here. Now, Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. You're pro I'm going to assume that you're familiar with the story. If you're not, you can go home and read it, read it and study it out yourself. It's a great story, the story of Ruth. Ruth 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. Now, when it says there, the close relative. Behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken. And then it says, come aside, friend. Come aside, friend. Um, that word for friend, you know what it is? It's so-and-so. It's John Doe. You know how we, if you have somebody who died and they don't know who the person is, what do they do? They say it's John Doe, okay? If it's a girl, it's a Jane Doe. This guy, he's John Doe. He's Mr. So-and-so. His name in Hebrew is Poloni Almoni. And I love just saying that because it's so fun to say. Poloni Almoni. It's got a little cadence and a rhyme to it. Hey, Mr. Poloni Almoni. You know, Mr. So-and-so. He's John Doe. Guess what? This guy doesn't have a name. And in the book of Ruth, his name is intentionally left 
out. Boaz is a man who has a name. Why? Because he's godly and he does what's right, even at great personal sacrifice. He sacrifices and he does what's right. Now, as I read through Ruth chapter 4, the rest of it, I'm going to emphasize the name and, how, and whenever the word name occurs. Okay, so it's gonna, there's quite a few verses before we get to the first one, but it, this won't take long. I'm just going to read through it. So, and Boaz took, I'm in verse 2, he took 10 men of the, ten, of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one, to, no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I'm going to take a pause right there. I just have to explain because we don't understand this culture. Basically, the man was forfeiting about three-fourths of his inheritance. He was losing a ton of money because of this stipulation to the, um, this contract. This has nothing to do with love or he doesn't love Ruth or have anything to do with that. That's got nothing to do with it. He was after the money. He was being selfish. Let us continue reading. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Mahlon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabites, the widow of Mahlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, for may his name be famous in Israel. Do you see how now it's flipped? It's talking about the name perpetuating, and now whose name is going to be famous? Boaz. Boaz's name will be famous. 
and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and said, or took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then look at how the book ends. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. That's a whole pile of names. See that? It's the name. Now, think about that. A Hebrew person, they could have just read through all of Ruth chapter 4. And then, what do they read? Song of Songs. Chapter 1. We can go back to Song of Songs. I know, I know. We're flipping around business. I don't like doing that, but I just felt I had to in this instance. I wanted to really impress upon you particularly the men, that you need to have a name. That's the second point. You want to enjoy marital intimacy. You need to have a name. How did Boaz have a name? He sacrificed. He served. He forfeited a ton of worldly possessions. The message of Song of Songs is really not any different than Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is just talking about marriage in general. What does it say in Ephesians chapter 5? Love your wife. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You sacrifice. You serve her. That's how you love her. And that includes marital intimacy. You serve her. What kind of a woman, I mean, she then gives her something to desire. <laughs> if you're a selfish jerk, why is she going to want you? <laughs> right? Seriously. Why should she make herself vulnerable when you are just selfish and there to take advantage of her? You need to have a name. And that name is what she finds intoxicating. It is the good ointment, the ointment poured forth. So verse 2 we've looked at. In verse 3 we've looked at. I did avoid the last, the end part. Therefore the virgins love you. What the world's up with that? Well, it's going to occur again. So we're going to skip it for right now. And we're going to come back to that idea at the end of verse 4. Now in verse 4, I don't know about your Bible, but mine has it like flipping all over the place. The daughters of Jerusalem are doing the talking. And then the Shulamites doing the talking. And then the daughters of Jerusalem are doing the talking again. Okay. Listen, when your Bible puts little headings in like that, okay, that's their interpretation. And this time, their interpretation is wrong. <laughs> Grab a really big, bold marker and just mark those out. Who's doing the talking through this entire section? It's the woman. It's the Shulamite. She is the one that's doing the talking. Uh, and so what does she have to say in verse 4? She has, draw me away. And then the next line is, we will run after you. Now, that phrase, after you, I don't know what translations that you have here, but your translations may have taken that very differently, different, different English terms. The ESV has, draw me after you. That's what they have. And I would say that's actually the better translation here. And the whole, we will run after you, it's like, who's the we? This is kind of weird. All right, instead, it should be, let us run. That's what it is, and the we is the husband and the wife. 
That's who the we is. So this is still the woman talking. And she says, draw me after you. And it's a, a command. It's an imperative. You know, she wants him. Let's run. You know, let's hurry. Let's enjoy this. And that's the third point. That's the third point. Rejoice that God created this thing called marital intimacy, and, and it's a gift for you to enjoy. Draw me away. Let's run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And now then there's three of these we statements at the end. Let us be glad. My translation is we will be glad. It's not a we. Okay, there's no we. It's a two people, and it's the husband and the wife. Let us be glad and rejoice in you, okay? And so that's kind of awkward, isn't it? Well, this is something that's called a plural of ecstasy. She's like really excited, and she uses the plural. We see this not only in song one, but we see it in song chapter six and verse uh, 13, where the man uses it, and he says, turn, turn, O Shulamite, in chapter 6 and verse 13, turn, turn, that we may look upon you. And that's kind of like, oh, what in the world's going on there? Like, we looking at, you know, this girl, all right? You know, it's not some we like a bunch of people. It's just the man. And it's a specific figure of speech. It's called a plural of ecstasy. And she is here, and she is just ecstatic about her lover. Let us be glad and rejoice in you. Let us remember or let us praise would be a better translation there. Let us extol your love more than wine. Let us extol your love more than wine. And then the last line, rightly do they love you. This woman in song chapter one, verse four is excited. I find it interesting that in our culture, especially with the online perversions that we that are uh, all over the place, what they seek to imitate is actually this. Isn't that fascinating to think that our young men, specifically, you know, this is especially a pertinent thing for me because I've got four young men <clears throat> that are growing up, and what is it that our culture is mimicking, is trying to imitate? They're trying to imitate this that this woman desires you. And the interesting thing that is in our culture, what that is is just a lie because all she is is she's just putting on something just so she can get paid. That's all it is. But this woman, she actually really genuinely desires him. She actually really genuinely loves him. I think that's a message that we need to communicate even to our young people. Why does it say at the end of verse 2, therefore the virgins love you? Why does it say at the end of verse 4, rightly do they love you? Who are the virgins? Those are single people. And this is kind of shocking to a lot of people because they're like, oh, goodness, the book of Song of Songs. Isn't there some old rabbi that said nobody should read it till they were 30 years old or something like that? <laughs> yes, there was. <laughs> He's wrong. Because <laughs> why do we have daughters of Jerusalem in verse 5? I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. That steps outside of our text. But who are the daughters of Jerusalem? They're the virgins. They're the young ladies. Song of Songs was meant to be written, was written to 
and had a message to not only married people, but even to single people. And this is what you should desire as a single person. What should you desire? You should desire somebody who has a name. Why is it that the virgins love this man? Because he has a name. And that, that is the exhortation to the single people. Do you want to enjoy marital intimacy with your spouse someday? Start now by having a name. Have a good reputation. There is an exhortation in Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, for, for all, for the women, for the men, and uh, for the single people. I've outlined those, those uh, different roles and how this text communicates to all. God wants you to enjoy marital intimacy. How? Desire your spouse. Two, have a name. Three, rejoice and enjoy it as a gift from God. It's a gift. Enjoy it as such. Are you having problems in your marriage? Is there a lack of intimacy in your marriage? Don't get online. <laughs> You're not fixing a washer here, okay? <laughs> you need to talk to your pastor, even the young guy here, okay? Or to an elder in your church. The men, the men, the woman, to the woman. Let us enjoy this as a gift from God. That's what it is. Let's pray and close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time that we're able to look at the book of Song of Solomon. And I pray for the families here. I pray that they would enjoy marital intimacy as a gift. I pray that um, there would be peace in the homes. There would be peace in the church. Thank you, Lord, for this gift. It is a gift. We're grateful for it. I pray for the single people here. I pray that they would seek to have a name that they would seek holiness, that they would seek godliness. Lord, I pray for I pray for this church as they go through this transition, as Pastor Mapes is, um, becomes the new pastor here. Uh, I, I pray that the, the gospel would continue to go forth and that the saints here, that they would grow in sanctification, in holiness, in godliness. Use this church, Lord, on the south side of Des Moines for your honor and glory, for the building up of the body of Christ and the evangelization of the lost. I pray for this church, God, in Jesus' name.